You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. If we could all think more generously about others and look out for others. And I think, you know, that rolls down to being a conscientious, safe driver. And that rolls down to, sure, like, hold the door open for the dude in the wheelchair, but don't, like, sit there and applaud for him. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's my biggest, like, that's my biggest message that I like to try and come to is just empathy. You know, we need to we need to think about each other. You know, I, I, I was very, very, very fortunate to have a lot of help in the early days of my injury and still now. You know, people who helped my ex-fiance when I was in the hospital and people who, like, brought us food when we came home and people who helped us shovel snow when I was, you know, early in this in this process. And I'm very, I feel so fortunate for all that. And I've tried to pay it forward by, like, being in touch with people who are newly injured spinal cord patients and, and talking about my experience as much as I can and hoping that others will learn from it. And I think it would be great if we could all look for opportunities to do that in our daily lives, just help people around us. And remember that there's people who are not around us who may also need us to look out for them. Even if it's a cyclist who is riding on the wrong side of the road, right? Like, you know, even if that cyclist is in the wrong place, like if you're driving a car, you should still look out for that person and not hit them. That was Andrew Bernstein. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, Marnie on the Move listeners. Welcome and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today on the podcast, I sync up with Andrew Bernstein, who also is known in the world of cycling and PR as Bernie Bernstein. He has such an incredible story. On July 20th, 2019, elite cyclist and velo racer Andrew Bernstein was riding home from his local velodrome when he was assaulted by a driver and left for dead in a ditch on the side of the road. Thankfully, he survived. Now he lives with an incomplete spinal cord injury and paraplegia. Today, through adaptation and hard work, he is back on the bike in an all new way. Before we dive into our conversation, shout out to my sponsors, Inside Tracker and Alchemine Supplements. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. They are my go-to for understanding my inner health, looking at my blood levels, and getting great nutritional insight. Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take control of your health and wellness. Unlock the power of your potential. Use our code for 20% off. Thank you, MOTM. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Also, shout out to Alchemind Supplements and Dr. Daryl Joffrey. I am loving the Alchemind plant-based organic protein powder. It has 
three core alkaline proteins, Sacha Inchi, pea, hemp, and of course, it's sugar-free. It's been a great addition into my training and fueling. I'm also using their acid-kicking mineral mix when I'm out on the bike for hydration, as well as the acid-kicking greens in all of my smoothies and their omega-3 and black seed oil supplements for inflammation and general health. Check out their website, getoffyouracid.com, and use our code MOTM20 for 20% off. Now, back to our guest. Bernie goes into detail about his life-changing accident and his recovery process, including his inspiring mindset and incredible physical therapy team and routine. He shares with me the mental strength needed to overcome such a tremendous obstacle and his current journey back to cycling. Bernie dials me in to where his passion for cycling began and how he got into racing. We talk about his career in media from journalism to PR and paid media, where he has worked in and around the outdoor and bike industry since 2006. And he is currently a senior account director in charge of paid media at the globally renowned agency, True Communications. Bernie's work has been published in Men's Health and Outside Magazine, and he strives to use his platform to talk about his journey to overcome his injury as well as speak about the importance of safe and responsible driving, which we talk about on the podcast today. We also do a deep dive into ableism, a topic Bernie is passionate about, and his mission to empower people with the education on how to treat those with disabilities. I caught up with Bernie a few weeks ago, just before he purchased his new e-bike, which is a specialized turbo Creo and very cool. You can check it out on his Instagram feed, Bernie Tweets. And I'm excited to share, on July 11th, 2021, just a few days ago, he went out on his first long ride on his favorite road. Bernie is an ultra-inspiring person, and I'm sure you will find this conversation very eye-opening and motivating. I hope it provides some insight on how we can all keep each other safe on the move. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your app, click on the Money on the Move podcast, scroll through the episodes, click on five stars, and click on leave a review. Also, sign up for our newsletter, the download, and share this conversation with your friends on social. Now, on to my conversation with Bernie. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It is so wonderful to finally connect with you. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to great to be speaking with you as well. You are an elite cyclist. Yes. You work in PR. How mm -hmm. did you get into cycling? And then how did you get into PR? So for me, cycling was always like kind of a family activity. Like, you know, starting from a very young age, I would, you know, I was riding on the back of my dad's bike and then you know, eventually graduated to my own bike. And, you know, we rode a lot as a family, my, you know, my mom and my brother, my dad and I, and then as I got older, I, you know, became more, uh, I, I became much more interested in cycling and I started riding a, a more and more on my own. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I started just, um, you know, I, I wouldn't call it like training, but in my mind, it was kind of training. Like, I, you know, like going out and just like making sure that I rode a couple hours after school and yeah, started racing in, 
I did my first races in high school and I was like, really had no idea what I was doing or how to get into the sport. And then went to college and joined the college cycling team. And that's where I kind of really learned about the competitive side of cycling. And I really took to it. I, you know, I've always been a pretty good athlete. I was like an okay cross country runner in high school. Um, and, but I'm not like super well coordinated. So I like wasn't great at ball sports. Um, so cycling to me, like was the right, was the right avenue. You know, I, I, um, I was a pretty good road cyclist and I like kind of quickly, quickly made, made it from, you know, cat five to cat three to cat two on the road. And then my career brought me to Pennsylvania in 2010, um, where there is a velodrome, which is, uh, you know, very, it's like a niche of bike racing. And it's something I'd seen, you know, I'd read about in Bella news and you'd see pictures of it. And maybe, you know, you see clips from the Olympics, but I really had, didn't know much about it and had never, never thought of it as something for myself. And I think, Part of that is because within track cycling, there are, there are niches within the niche. Um, and I think for non-track cyclists who've never been exposed to it, when you hear track, you a lot of people first think of the match sprinters, you know, these like huge men and women who, you know, race for like three laps. And that, that is an incredible part of track cycling, but it's, it's only one part of track cycling. I and mean, right. there's all these endurance events. And the metaphor that I like to use to describe it is it's kind of like, it's kind of like running track where you have sprinters, uh, but then you also have, you also have kind of the middle distance. So middle and long distances. So, you know, I started racing on the track in 2011. I did my first event and, um, I just loved it. And I, and part of what I loved about it was the stadium nature of it. Like, you know, you're racing in front of this enormous crowd. There's this huge grandstand. There's people banging on boards for you, yelling at you, um, in Pennsylvania around that facility, it's like a thing that families do on Friday night, they go to the velodrome and it's like a cheap night out for a family with, you know, you buy hot, the kids, hot dogs, drink beer. And then as an athlete, you get to be kind of the center of the show. So I, I really took to kind of the, the showmanship aspect of it. I really love that. And it's super technical, right? Yeah. You know, it's pretty interesting. Like I, I would say that I was like a pretty good road racer. I was, was and remain a terrible mountain biker. But then I like I was a much better track cyclist than I ever was road racer in part because while it is a highly technical sport, I was like never good at getting my bike around corners and I was like not a very fast descender. And that's a real disadvantage when you're um, when you're road racing. Right. So track cycling, like there's no corners, there's no descending. Uh, so the technical aspect of it is more like control of the Peloton or control of yourself within the Peloton, right. which I was good at. And then also kind of just being able to tactically read the race, which relative to the field that I was racing against, I was only okay. But, you know, compared to most cyclists, I was, I was very, very good. So yes, yeah, so I really love track cycling. I really took to it. And, you know, starting in like 2013, 14, I really transitioned almost full time to just racing on the velodrome and, and primarily just in Pennsylvania, because we had this amazing track right there with, you know, people who would come from all over the world to race there. And like, you know, when, when you have that in your backyard, there's not a lot of incentive to leave. Yeah. I can't uh, believe I've never been there and I live in New York. It's like such an iconic stadium and place to, to go. It's, it, it's worth the trip out on a Friday. I'd say, yeah. um, you could, you know, stay overnight and do the, the riding in that part of Pennsylvania is probably some of the best in the world. Really? Okay. Yeah. The road riding. I moved to Colorado in 2018 and, you know, got involved in the track cycling here, which is, um, it's not at that level, but you know, at that time it was kind of a nascent growing track cycling community. Unfortunately at this point, track, Cycling is pretty much dead in Colorado, which is really sad. Why is it dead in Colorado? Just because of COVID and the pandemic or? No. Well, that's part of it. So we have two velodromes in Colorado. We have one just outside Boulder in the town of Erie. And then we have one in Colorado Springs, which is the Olympic Training Center. And the 
the U.S. Olympic Committee owns the track in Colorado Springs, and they have declared that there will be no that track is closed to anyone except the Olympic athletes until like through this, through the end of this year, which is really sad. You know, initially it was a COVID precaution, but I think it became clear, you know, like nine months ago that like we could have safely had community programs at that facility. Mm -hmm. And the U S Olympic committee just doesn't care to do, to bother with that, which is really sad for that, for everyone down there. Yeah. And then our facility up here in Colorado is a little bit encumbered. The people who own it are trying to sell it. And there was a deal the land was going to be sold to a developer and the Veldrum was going to be bulldozed. And then there was an effort to save it and uh, lifetime fitness actually agreed to buy it. And then COVID happened and lifetime fitness lost you know, revenue and they backed out of the deal. Right. So the facility is sitting there and unfortunately not being used at all, not available for use. So it's, it's a real shame. Yeah. It's, it's that a real is a shame, shame what we've come to. And then, so yeah. what brought you to Pennsylvania? Just going back a little bit, is that, were you wor- working mm-hmm. in media there or? Yeah, yeah. yes. So I, I uh, started my career as a journalist. Um, yeah. I was a, like a city reporter in upstate New York. And I also, you know, worked at a bike shop part-time because I'm a passionate cyclist. And, right. and in 2010, I got a job at Bicycle Magazine, which is based in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. Right. Rodale, so yeah. Yep, uh, uh, formerly Rodale. So I moved moved down there and um, and lived there from 2010 to 2018. And I started at Rodale as the, the gear editor of bicycling. So I was in charge of you know all the all the reviews and everything. And then after about three years, I transitioned to the marketing department. Uh, so I was helping support the ad sales team and running our events and organizing trade show activations. And that was that was a great great opportunity. I really love that job. And I had an amazing boss that I worked for. And then Rodale got acquired by Hearst in 2018. And there was a lot of change. My boss was let go. And I was moved in from marketing into a sales position, which I, I was okay. You yeah. know, I, I did definitely didn't make it rain, but I had some de- decent deals, but I kind of quickly decided that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, so I had the opportunity to join um, True Communications, which is a marketing and PR firm that I work for now. And we represent uh, a range of brands, uh, many many of the top leading cycling brands, but also FitTech businesses and um, other other kind of fitness brands, technology brands. We, you know, we have a subsidiary now that represents the uh, fast fashion brand Lulu's. So, you know, we're, we're pretty diversified right. and it's, uh, it's been a great, it's been a great place for me. Yeah. I love your portfolio. And so with that job, you moved to Colorado yeah, so the deal was that that you know they hired me in Pennsylvania with the idea that I was going to move to Boulder and open an office here. We're based in California, right? And I did do that. Uh, we opened an office. Unfortunately, we opened an office in March of 2020. Yeah. And two weeks later, we shut the office because of COVID. <laughs> Simultaneously to moving to Colorado and training in Colorado, you are at the peak of your elite cycling career simultaneously to yeah working in PR and then was it the P- well, probably yeah. probably probably coming to the end of my cycling career I would say um yeah you know I think like my peak year was 2016 I had uh, an amazing season and I, I you know competed at elite nationals and got eighth place in the points race and then I in 2017 my my mom had been sick for a long time in 2017 that kind of came to a head and she ended up passing away and I wasn't really able to focus on training and then in 2018, um, I was preparing for the move to Colorado. I had this new job. I also um, I was on the board of directors at the Velodrome, and we had to uh, we had to fire our executive director, and 
myself and a couple of the other members of the board of directors stepped in and spent a lot of time managing the facility. 2016 was the last year that I was able to like really focus exclusively on training and, and really put it all together. I was hoping that 2019 would be a comeback year and it kind of was. Um, I, you know, I had, I had a lot of good races, you know, one race in Colorado and, and traveled to elite nationals and I was preparing and I raced in Pennsylvania uh, with one of the fastest fields I've ever experienced in June of 2019. And then I was preparing to go to a race called the single speed classic in outside of Minneapolis, the Blaine Velodrome. And it was kind of a special deal because that Velodrome was going to be decommissioned after that season. Uh, so that was going to be the last big race at that facility. And I really wanted to get out there and race it before, before I lost the opportunity. I was training for that race uh, when I got hit by a van. You had been training for this race and you left the track one night and you were on your way home and a driver hit you from behind, knocked you into a ditch and left you nearly dead. What happened? Uh, that's the very short version of, of the crash itself. Um, and then, you know, I, um, I came to in a hospital 10 days later and, you know, I was intubated and, um, my family kind of told me that, told me what had happened. And, you know, of course my first bike, my first question was like, well, what happened to my bike? <laughs> or no, no, I'm sorry. My the question wasn't what it, it wasn't. Yeah. So the first question was what happened to the bike? The second question was which bike was I riding? And because, you know, I had like my bike and then I had a bike for one of our clients that I was using, but it wasn't mine. Um, and I was very relieved to hear that my bike had not been involved in the crash. <laughs> um, Such an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, very silly. And like probably a uh, demonstration that I didn't really understand what was going on. Right. Yeah. So I, I was hospitalized for three months in total, you know, about two weeks in the ICU at Denver Health. Um, during which time I went, underwent a lot of surgeries. I had 35 broken bones. So there were surgeries to repair my, uh, my shoulder and my pelvis and my femur and my tibia fibia and my ankle. And then there were also two surgeries to fuse my spine. And, you know, I think spines have the bony part of the spine, the vertebrae. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the spinal cord, which runs down the center of the spine. And, you know, so you can injure the bony part of your spine and require fusion, but be okay. Uh, or in my case, you can have an injury that touches the cord itself. And I'm very fortunate, you know, my, my cord got damaged at the L2 vertebrae, which is, you know, like kind of lower in your back. Mm -hmm. And it was, the cord was damaged, but not severed. So I have what we call um, incomplete paraplegia. And the way that presents is that my left leg is partially paralyzed. And then I also have uh, my bladders paralyzed. And I, I, I feel very fortunate because at that level, the L2 level, had it been a complete injury, I would, I would be in a wheelchair. Or even if it had been a more severe incomplete injury, both of my legs could be affected or, um, or the, you know, the, the paralysis of my left leg could have been worse. So while it's, it's a very serious injury and, and it, you know, an injury that like has completely reshaped my life and will change the way that I live forever. I feel very fortunate that the spinal injury, the spinal cord injury was not as bad as it could have been. How did someone find you? Like, what was the story behind, like, how did you, and how did you get this whole, like the backstory of what happened on that day? 
It's a pretty amazing story. So this, this driver hit me um, and I got thrown into a little ditch and, you know, it was, it was daylight. I think it was, it was gray and maybe a little bit rainy, but, um, but it was, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon in July. And I had a light on my bike and I was, you know, wearing a, a, a red helmet. My bike was red. And, uh, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't camouflaged. Right. Right. Um, and to make matters worse, the place where I got hit, the shoulder is as wide as a travel lane, super wide shoulder. So, it, you know, like no reason for this driver to have deviated outside of his lane so far and hit me with such speed. Um, and we know it must've been with a lot of speed because of how far I was thrown. And, you know, my bike was cracked in half. There were pieces of the vehicle on the, on the road, which is actually how they identified the, the vehicle. The vehicle was found and impounded. And I, you know, I have this, like, I don't remember being hit, but I, I remember I have this very vague memory of coming to on the ground and kind of understanding what had happened um, and understanding that I needed help. And I remember that I tried to find my phone and I, I couldn't find it or I couldn't reach it. Uh, and then I remember thinking like, okay, well, if I can't call 911, I'm going to have to try and signal a car. And I remember thinking about how I was going to try and like lift myself up. And I don't remember actually doing it, but I did because the man who found me, his name is Tim Kalach. And he said that he was, you know, driving down the, the road's name is Arapahoe. He was driving down Arapahoe uh, to bring his father home. They've been at church together. And he saw, he saw a face like lift up from the ground and then lay back down. And it was such like a weird fleeting thing to see that he wasn't like really sure that he'd seen it. So he, he turned his car around and circled back around. And on the second pass, he didn't see anything. He was like, well, I better just like, I really want to make, make sure. And he thought maybe it was like a, an unhomed person who like was trying to get into Boulder and maybe he would give this person a lift. So he turned his car around a second time and made a third pass. And on the third pass, he saw my bike, which had been cracked in half. And he spotted my helmet which had, I guess, come off my head somehow. And so he stopped the car and got out and found me. And I was in this kind of like semi-conscious state and he called 911 and, you know, an ambulance came from Louisville. Um, and, you know, I got, I got brought to the closest emergency room was just a couple miles away. And it was, uh, you know, is the, the line on the bill from the emergency room was full trauma activation. So, you know, this is, everybody is crowding in and, you know, I had two collapsed lungs and internal bleeding and, um, uh, all these broken bones. And, you know, my, my left leg, as Tim described, it was, he's like, your leg was pointing every which way. So obviously there was extreme trauma to my left leg, you know, broken hip, broken femur, broken tib, fib ankle. So, you know, in the ER, they, they put chest tubes into both sides of my, of my chest. I have, you know, two matching scars kind of on the sides of my rib cage where they put tubes in. Uh, to let my lungs reinflate, they intubated me. And then they just, you know, they did full body CT scans and MRI and, you know, they found all these injuries. And, you know, the, the, the thing that almost killed me was the internal bleeding. Um, I was like bleeding out into my pelvis. So I had emergency surgery where they like put gauze inside my pelvis to stop the bleeding. And, once I was kind of stabilized, I was flown by helicopter to Denver Health, which is a level one trauma center. And I was at that hospital, Denver Health, for, for almost a month, um, you know, two weeks in the ICU and then another 10 days in a step-down unit. And Denver Health is where they, you know, they removed the gauze from my, my pelvis and they did um, yeah, a total of 10 surgeries to repair all the broken bones. And, you know, I've got like tons of titanium in my body now. 
And, you know, I was so, uh, so fucked up from all this that, you know, I, I was then sent when I was kind of stable, still requiring daily medical supervision, but stable, I was sent to a, um, a long-term care hospital. And I was there for a month, just kind of resting. And I got, I got started on some very gentle physical therapy there and just, you know, gave my bones time to heal. And then when I was, was ready, I was transferred to a hospital called Craig hospital also in Denver, which is a um, hospital that specializes in spinal cord injury and, and TBI rehabilitation. And I was, you know, I was there for a month and learned how to get around in a wheelchair and then started to learn how I was going to walk again. And, you know, lots of therapy on uh, just trying to like practice standing and practice transferring from one service to another service and learning how to get in and out of a car again. And all these things that I had to learn how to do things that I'd been doing for my entire life that all of a sudden I had to relearn, you know, and at the end of it, I was sent home and, uh, that was, you know, three months in the hospitals and then came home and, um, I was able to restart work on a part-time basis and kind of like scaled up work, uh, very slowly over, um, over probably, it probably took me about six months to get back to full-time. And now, uh, you know, coming up on the two year anniversary, uh, you know, I'm working full time and I do a ton of physical therapy. Yeah. You really and, are uh, doing great on, I follow you on Instagram and it's just amazing and incredible. Well, thank you. You know, I yeah. appreciate it. And it's, it's, um, the, you know, this injury is horrible and I would never wish it on anyone or myself, but I would say that there's been, it did get, provide me like a kind of reset opportunity. And, you know, I was, I think in 2019, I was realizing that I was coming to the end of my bike racing career, at least at the elite level, because I just first of all, it was getting too old for that shit. Yeah. Uh, and there's all these like, you know, literal kids, like 19 and 20 year olds coming up who right. are way, way faster than me. And second of all, it's, you know, it takes a lot of time to train to race that level. Um, and I was realizing that the time I needed, I needed the time for other things. And so, you know, I would have preferred to have transitioned out of bike racing of my own volition on my own timeline, instead of having been, you know, assaulted by a driver. But nevertheless, it did provide me the opportunity to kind of reevaluate how I was spending my time and what, what I want to do with my life. And, um, and, and life's different now. I, you know, I spend a lot of time on my therapy, but I also, uh, I'm better at making time for, for my relationship and for my family and for talking to friends on the phone. And, uh, and I've gotten really into hiking, which is something I did when I was a teenager, but hadn't really done when I was training. And it's been really fun to kind of reconnect with that activity. You obviously are incredibly mentally strong and clearly the universe wanted you to live. So what got you through to where you are now? I mean, I'm sure there's many things, but is there something mentally that really has been pulling you through? Well, I think there's a lot that I, you know, want to accomplish in my life that I haven't yet. And, you know, I have aspirations of like a relationship and a family and like, and, you know, certainly like I have my existing family that I want to be with and be around and, um, so, you know, the, I guess probably the initial thing was just to try and like get back to life. And I, I, I think I pretty quickly understood that my life was going to be different. Like I didn't, I wasn't someone who like imagined that I was going to like get back to racing at the elite level. But I, I do think it was like a drive to try and like continue to live my life and make the most of it right. um, as I always have. And that has served to me, I, I think. Would you, after everything that happened to you, if you were able to, and maybe one day there'll be some way that you can, would you want to get back out on a bike even after that experience? Or would you be like, I never want to get on the bike again? 
Well, no, I do ride. You, you know, do? I started riding. Yeah, I started riding like around the one year mark. Um, I started riding outside. I, I actually started riding indoors only like four or five months after the crash. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And it, it didn't look like it was pretty bad, like, you know, yeah. but but I could I could make it happen. Uh, and then I started riding outdoors. And at first I was like, actually for a long time, I was really only interested in riding on bike paths in part because, you know, away from cars, but also honestly, a big part of it is just the, the, the flat usually or pretty flat. And I'm, you know, I'm, my left leg at this point, it can pedal a little bit, but it's really weak. So it's really my right leg doing most of the work and it's hard right. to get up any kind of a hill. Right. Um, but I got bored of the bike path pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, so for like a long time, for like many months, I decided like, you know, if I can't get up a hill on a bike, I don't even want to ride. So I, I was just hiking and spending time in the woods and, um, yeah. you know, seeing things I'd never seen before. Um, and where I live in Boulder, I mean, there are incredible trails just across the street. So, right. you know, you don't have to go far for that kind of adventure. You should get one of those <clears throat> specialized motorized bikes that Rich Roll is driving around on. <laughs> well, so that's my that's my plan. So I, I started riding. So, you know, I, start, I did start riding in the fall, I started riding more on the road a little bit, choosing quiet roads, but like, I don't know, honestly, the cars don't scare me that much. You know, like I definitely, I definitely choose my, my routes more carefully now. Right. But I mean, um, you were on a great route and still something happened. So it's like, yeah, you know, right. It's outside your control. It is. Um, but actually you can give some advice to drivers. I mean, there's so many Let's talk about safe driving because, I mean, I think, you know, as cyclists, we do everything we can to be safe. That is in our power. I mean, I would speak right. generally speaking, you know, I stop at traffic lights. I ride close to the side of the, you know, away from the cars. You know, I'm, I'm not yeah. wearing headphones when I'm riding. You know, I do right. all the things. I have bike lights, you know, but things happen. And it's because someone who's driving is texting or changing a radio station or they think they hate cyclists and so they're going to scare the crap out of you when they ride by and you know those are things that's just not cool yeah so you know i think that like like you're saying there are precautions that cyclists should take um yeah. that we don't always and like you know, I, I don't want to engage in like victim blaming but at the same time you see cyclists doing dangerous things um and we shouldn't and you know i'm not going to pretend that i never blew a stop sign or or a red light. And like, you know, I did that shit all the time, no doubt. And I like, I think it's okay, you know, it, to do so in a very, in a very controlled manner. But I think that, you know, drivers um, have been conditioned to think that they own the world and created it. We as a society have created that because we like invest tons of money in roadways and we destroy the rail network. And, um, you know, we don't prioritize other modes of transportation. Um, so I think, you know, drivers have to shift their their kind of perception of their place in the world which is much easier said than done they have a responsibility to operate their vehicle safely and you know even if a cyclist may like technically be in the wrong if you hit somebody with your car and they're gravely injured or killed do you really want that on you and you know i think like driving is is a very serious thing and we don't always treat it as such we treat it as like a um a thing that we can do without thinking. And I think the reality is that's not the case. I think if you're operating a motor vehicle, you need to give it your full attention and, and care. Um, and, 
you know, like I, one thing that I always think about is speed limits, you know, like my, in my neighborhood, the speed limit is 25 on most roads and 20 on some, and you see people driving much, much faster than that. But when you, when you slow down, you start to notice more things. Like you see people on the sidewalks and you see people taking out the trash cans and you see, um, you see other cars that, you know, you may see somebody getting into a vehicle. And these are all things that like are potential, they're potentially in danger, you know, potentially harmed by you and your vehicle. Right. So I think a very easy thing that everybody should do when driving is obey the speed limit and, you know, kind of, it will result in you driving slower. Um, but it will also result in you being a safer user of the roadway because you can be more, much more attentive to the things around you. And then, you know, I'd also say that we should never, ever be fucking around with our phones when we're driving. I get it. Like yeah. your phone is very engaging. You are getting all kinds of um, notifications all the time. You may try to be coordinating with someone that you're going to meet. And I think even people who are, who intend to be good drivers still say like, oh, well, I'm using the hands-free or, you know, I'm using voice to text. And the reality is like, even if you're doing that stuff, it's still a distraction. So I, I am a, a strong advocate of like, you know, if you're getting in your phone, I'm sorry, if you're getting in your car, you should not be fucking around with your phone. And if you need it to navigate, you should set your destination before you start driving and let it do its thing. Um, and whoever is, you know, texting you can wait until you arrive. And if it's really, truly an emergency, then you should stop driving and pull over and to the side of the road it. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or find a parking lot or whatever it may be, because I, it just, it's so dangerous to be engaging with your phone um, while driving. And, and again, like, look, I, I'm not going to pretend that I never right. I mean, did this. Yeah. But you know, you hear the stories of things that happen to people who are running or cycling. Right. And, yeah. I, I mean, you don't even, you shouldn't have to hear those stories to have the sense not to text or speed, but, and we've all been guilty of doing it while we're driving, but right. I mean, it's important that just to bring an awareness to it and try and stop. Yep. Exactly. Um, so, you know, those are, those are the two biggest things I think, you know, like slow down and reduce distractions. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's, it's so important. Um, because we all have, we have a responsibility to keep each other safe. And sometimes that means that you're looking out for someone who may be doing something wrong. Right. But as, as humans and Americans, we should all be like looking out for each other, no matter what, like, even if someone is operating their bike in a dangerous way, if you keep them safe, you've done a good thing. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? All right, switching gears, let's talk about ableism. I know this is something you really wanted to discuss and it's a topic that you are passionate about. One thing that I've come to learn is that, or come to understand is that every person is requires different accommodations, right? Some people may need it to be extremely dark in their bedroom before they go to sleep at night. And right. like, that's maybe not a, like something we would call a disability, but it is like an accommodation that they right. require or that they prefer. And then, you know, there are people with much more extreme accommodations. You know, there are people who have, you know, high level incomplete spinal cord injuries and are restricted to power chairs and need dependent care to, you know, shower and change and get into bed. Um, and, you know, that's like an extreme level outside. of, yeah. of um, accommodation. And that, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle right now, right? You know, I like, I have this leg that is disabled, that is, you know, it's paralyzed, but if it's cooler temperatures and I'm wearing pants, then like all the bracing on my leg is hidden. And, you know, if you saw me 
park my car in the handicap spot, which I do most of the time and get out of my car and walk into a store, you might say like, oh, I just got like a little limp. Why is he in using the handicap spot. spot? Yeah. Right. And the reason that I use handicap spots is because while I do walk pretty well, I really am not very fast and I can't like quickly get out of the way when there's someone driving through a parking lot too fast. So for me, it's about like parking closer to where I'm going to reduce the amount of time that I'm walking in a space where cars are driving around. I have a close friend who's, who is paraplegic and uses a wheelchair most of the time. And for him, the handicap spot is very important to have the room to swing his door all the way open so that he can get his chair out and then get into his chair. People make a lot of assumptions about other people. You know, we as a society have decided that there's a certain level of disability that requires special accommodations. And if you are not someone who requires those accommodations, you should not take advantage of them because you're potentially harming someone who needs yes, accommodations, yes. right? And like living where I live in Boulder, which is, you know, pretty much suburban and we drive everywhere and we park everywhere. I see people who are not disabled using handicap disabled spots constantly. And it drives me fucking nuts. Yes. And like, I regularly I'm on the phone with the police department saying, Hey, you got to get down here and give these people a ticket. And like, I'm sure they never do, but like, I, I feel like it's, like I have to do that. I feel like I have to do that because I think about my friend in his wheelchair and if he gets there and the spot is not available, he has a real problem. He may, like, may not be able to get out of his car or worse, he ends up parking at the far end of the par- parking lot and then having to be in a wheelchair wheeling down a place where people are reversing out of parking spots and probably can't see him. And that's that's extremely dangerous. And then you know, the, the other thing I would say about ableism is like, don't ask a stranger about their disability. Yeah. You know, like that's super rude. People do the strangest things. Yeah. It happens to me constantly. You know, like I I can't tell you like how many times I've been hiking and some, it's always an old white man stops me and says, ACL tear, huh? And, you know, depending on my mood, I have like different ways of dealing with it. And, you know, and then, you know, my friend in the wheelchair, like what he gets all the time is like, great job, man. And he like, he doesn't want that. He's like, just living his life. He's just like going to buy groceries or he's going to the physical therapy place. Like, you know, he's been in a wheelchair for years now. He doesn't need applause when he opens a door for himself, right? So I, I think the the best rule of thumb for people who are, you know, not like really disabled is just the best rule of thumb for people who are, you know, mostly able-bodied is not to comment on other people's disability or other people's bodies. You yeah, know? and not to park in the handicap spots. Yes, that like, you That's know- just like- that's super, that's really, that's really like a danger. That's a safety thing. Um, but then I would say, you know, like going up to someone who's in a wheelchair and saying like, wow, you're doing such a good job. Like it's, it's kind of a microaggression, you know, like that person doesn't necessarily want that, that interaction. You don't know what's going on with them or why, or where they're at that day or whatever. And like, I think when, you know, when someone gets applause for opening a door, it's just a reminder like, wow, someone thinks I need an encouragement to do this activity of daily living that I do 18,000 times a day. And they, you know, they think they need an encouragement because I'm in a wheelchair. And that's it, not a good feeling. I mean, I know that you're also, you know, you do a lot of mo- motivational speaking. Where, what are some of the topics that you are speaking about? And have you been doing this on Zoom during COVID or? Well, I, you know, I would say that this is something that like I would like to get more into. I've yeah. done a little bit of it. You know, primarily I've been speaking to um, physical therapy students and kind of just like talking to them about how to motivate a patient who is not self-motivated. And I've been talking to them about, you know, how to, how to, like how to connect with patients 
and about like the the impacts and again this is a very specific audience but like talking to them about the impact that they can have on a patient's life because i have four physical therapists who i see you know all the time you know at least once or twice a week and they have made they've allowed me to like walk around and go hiking and be relatively have my pain managed and then you know i've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of student groups and i talked to them about um goal setting and how to like you know think about long-term goals and short-term goals and and process goals and and about how like adversity is is something to um to think about and and be aware of and eventually and and overcome but also to to realize that like overcoming adversity may mean a lots of different things you know like my paraplegic friends for them like overcoming adversity is not going to be getting up and walking around um they may do that a little bit but they're not they're not going to be you know community ambulators however they may overcome adversity in other ways you know there's someone i know um you know wrote a, a beautiful memoir and you know there's other people who uh you know find ways to you know live wonderful family lives and like there's lots of positive outcomes right um and i think we all have and again this is not unique to the disabled community this is true of everybody we right. all have to like think about what we want from life and how to get there and then also recognize that there's adjustments and like you know what you want in life may may be different from what you end up getting but mm-hmm. what you get is still pretty awesome and so th- that's a lot of what i talk about and it's you know it's something that i like i hope to do more of as time goes on and you know right. as i as i get my story out there more and more but it's good to, to it's been really helpful to me to talk to talk about my experience and to help others learn from it. And do you think like because you were an athlete and because you were on track to, you know, as a cyclist, as an elite cyclist, that the mentality and mindset of your athletic personality helped you kind of get through and come to this place where you are now, where you're continuing to want to improve physically and meet different benchmarks? Like, do you think that was helpful to have that mindset? Definitely. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that like my experience as an athlete and my like, and the the fact that I'm used to like spending a lot of time on my physical well-being or my physical fitness, like served me very well. Yeah. But I also think that like, it's not a requirement. You know, I think there's lots of people who, um, who you know end up in with a spinal cord injury or other serious disability uh, from a motor vehicle accident or from you know jumping into a pool that was too shallow or whatever it may be, who who can still like kind of use the principles of like goal setting and um, and kind of positive positive mindset yeah. and 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 kind of positive imagining of what the future can look like. Uh, so I like, I think there's no doubt that I got to, I got to fall back on my experience as an athlete and it's extremely helpful to me. But again, like, I don't think that's, it's not a requirement. uh, It's not a requirement. I think, you know, we can all achieve our goals no matter what our background may be. So what's the biggest, like, what would you say? Like, what do you want to leave us with today in this conversation? Like, what's the biggest message that you really want people to take away from this conversation? I mean, I think the, the biggest thing for me is that, and you know, this is, this is true. This is something that I like came to recognize through my experience, but also just through the last year of living in pandemic 
we have to look out for each other. And I think as Americans, we sometimes have this idea that we're going to be individualistic and we're going to, you know, just think about ourselves and our, the people around us. And, you know, there's a lot of Americans and probably not just Americans, but that's who I know best who, um, like if you can't see the suffering, it doesn't exist. And that's, that's really sad to me. And I think, you know, we would be better off as a country and as a people, if we were more empathetic and we were more able to imagining the difficulties of others, I think it would, it would help us get to a place where we were more uh, equal as a country. And we didn't have where we didn't have as much systemic racism and we didn't have a gender pay gap. You know, if, if we could all, think more generously about others and look out for others. And I think, you know, that rolls down to being a conscientious safe driver. And that rolls down to sure, like hold the door open for the dude in the wheelchair, but don't like sit there and applaud for him. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my biggest, like, that's my biggest message that I like to try and come to is just empathy. You know, we need to, we need to think about each other. You know, I, I, I was very, very, very fortunate to have a lot of help in the early days of my injury and still now, you know, people who helped my ex-fiance when I was in the hospital and people who like brought us food when we came home and people who helped us shovel snow when I was, you know, early in this, in this process. And I'm very, I feel so fortunate for all that. And I've tried to pay it forward by like being in touch with people who are newly injured spinal cord patients and, and talking about my experience as much as I can and hoping that others will learn from it. And I think, it would be great if we could all look for opportunities to do that in our daily lives. It's just help the people around us. And remember that there's people who are not around us who may also need us to look out for them. Even if it's a cyclist who is riding on the wrong side of the road, right? Like, you know, even if that cyclist is in the wrong place, like if you're driving a car, you should still look out for that person and not hit them. Yeah, that would be nice. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And it's my pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 